Hey, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. We're taking a week off for a break. Uh, We'll come back to you with a brand new episode next week. But in the meantime, we thought we would launch a little bonus episode that has some kind of like cutting room floor stuff. Stuff that, um, not that it wasn't good, it just was sort of beside the point. In the process of making this show, one of my favorite things about making it has been interviewing our guests. What you hear on the show is a fraction, like a very small percentage of the actual amount of words that they say and conversation that we have. It is always really fun. It's a huge exploratory process for me, Um, a lot of back and forth and dialogue. And so I thought it would be cool to let you guys hear some of the leftovers, some of the stuff that is really insightful and interesting, but we did not get to use for various reasons. I want to start with Greg Thornberry. Greg wrote a book called Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music, Larry Norman, and the Perils of Christian Rock. And he's written just a lot about this time period, especially when it comes to music and music culture and Christian music culture and the sort of origins of that. So I talked to him a little bit about Larry Norman, but there were also just some like really wild, interesting stories about the Jesus People movement that We didn't get the cover in the show itself, but I thought you might enjoy. So here is Greg Thornberry, just a few sections of my interview with him that I thought you would find enjoyable on how the moral majority came out of the Jesus People movement, how Larry Norman patented one way, and the political side of the Jesus People movement. How that one way sign came about, that's Larry Norman patented that people come to see Larry Norman play and after he was done finishing a song they'd clap just like you would do at any concert and he's like that's not what this is about stop clapping he would actually if they started clapping like white people belong to a song uh-huh. Larry Norman would shut it down he'd stop playing it's like you're supposed to be thinking about this not having a good time <laughs> and so the one way sign what he would do after he would play is he would immediately hold the you know his finger index finger up and point towards heaven to say god should be getting the praise and instead of clapping it be, there was this eerie effect at jesus movement concerts where there was no clap it was quite instead of like a rock concert which is loud jesus rock concerts were quiet because after the song there'd be this eerie everybody be pointing their finger toward heaven wow and the culture doesn't turn on them at first right like the time magazine's covering this yeah i I think that um i think that because you know people like the, the the jesus people um larry norman jimmy carter people who were the the leading francis schaefer they were talking about what were their big issues the environmental crisis racism poverty they talked like democrats they didn't talk about the abortion was not really an issue even though roe versus wade had been passed in 1973 why not you think uh, because i think that they they saw that the main the main problem with the country was sort of the heart, you know, and if you could deal with the heart, you would deal with war, you would deal with economic injustice. That was definitely Larry Norman's perspective. The, one of the biggest problems was white institutional racism in the South. On his song, um, The Great American Novel, there's this line, you kill a black man at midnight just for talking to your daughter, and you make his wife your mistress, and you 
keeper without water. And the sheet you wear upon your face is the sheet your children sleep on. And at every meal, you say a prayer you don't believe, but still you keep on. They were attacking cultural Christianity. So those other issues were on, they were trying to deal with the issue of the heart first and foremost. And the most visible outworkings of that were they saw racism, poverty, spending, you know, $13 billion on a moonshot while people are starving at home. And that seemed to be something that Jesus would have spoken out against because he said, blessed are the poor. The Jesus People movement did seem to have this bigger impact than a typical youth Christian culture, right? Like we had our own, we had DC Talk and stuff, but it didn't have the impact of the Jesus People movement. What was it about the Jesus People movement that was different? There's a lot of debates as to, you know, how much impact it really did have. But one thing that you definitely will see is that many of the people that came out of the Jesus movement did wind up becoming you know, like priests of Orthodox churches, Mm. you know, and becoming very high liturgical, like it settles out in that way. You you have them going, a lot of them going later in their lives into Catholicism and Orthodoxy. So they still sort of abandon institutional evangelicalism and they go into high church. They go the the opposite uh, direction. I think from our vantage point, it's easy to critique, you know, the anti-institutional nature of things. But there's no doubt that the that the, the Jesus movement definitely changed the way churches are today. If there was no had not been Larry Norman, there wouldn't be contemporary music in churches. The Jesus movement made it made church forced churches to say. If kids are listening to this, maybe we should play this kind of music. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's by mistake that Hillsong's their next big conference that they're doing is like they're using the one-way sign for Jesus, and they're wanting to sort of they're bringing back all of that sort of anti-institutional, you know, Jesus first type language. Now, you know, for all those kinds of right reasons you could you could say well it set a whole generation adrift from orthodoxy I, you know those those arguments definitely need to be heard but um the you know the state of denominational christianity in the late 60s and early 70s wasn't so great yeah <laughs> when yeah. you go back and look at it it right. was pretty compromised probably the most stunning interview I had was with Mark Knoll, who is the person to talk to about American history and its relation to religion, how religion played a role in American history, in particular how the Christian Bible played a role. So I was really happy to have an opportunity to interview him. This was the first interview I did for the podcast, and it really did set the course of how the podcast would pan out. So there's a lot in this interview that we didn't get to use. So here he is talking some more about the nature of the Bible and slavery, racism, and the impact of that. Coming out of the Civil War, there's an awful lot of positive recourse to the, the Bible. During the war itself, some use of the Bible to whip up support for the South and the North. 
think of uh, here, uh, think of the uh, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Julie Ward Howe. It's just a series of Bible quotations, whipping up enthusiasm for the northern military effort. But I, I, in, in the war itself, there probably was more use of the Bible for comfort, consolation, yeah. salvation preaching. A lot of really good books in the last 10 or 15 years that have worked in the diaries and, and, and letters of, of soldiers. But because of the divide over slavery, and because that divide was conquered rather than convinced. In other words, uh, it, it's, a, it's kind of a sad, I mean, it's a very sad thing that Bible arguments defending slavery continue strong after the Civil War. And very soon after the Civil War, they're associated with race-based, genetic, scientific racism that looks at black people as animals. I mean, but the Bible, there's a Bible art. So that, that keeps, keeps going. Um, the key fact was, I think, the, the almost, well, not total, the, the very, very strong reliance of the United States culture and society in the Bible shrank when the Bible, when people trusting the Bible couldn't agree on how to take care of slavery. So you get in the 1870s and 80s and 90s, actually some, some really important, positive Bible things. You have the preaching of D.L. Moody, who uh, kind of pioneers a, a new way to talk to urban, urban uh, ma masses. You get actually some um, application, a little bit of application of the Bible to, to the, the new economic order in the United States, which is capitalist and, and huge expansion very rapidly, but not much. Uh, so the big problems of the United States in the 1870s, 1890s are racism, lynching, and massive capital expansion. And uh, apart from the African-American community, by the mid-1870s, there's very little Bible application to race and slavery. Jim Crow, lynching. There is a little, as I say, there's a little bit of Bible application thinking about, well, how, how should a modern industrial economy be organized fairly and righteously, but not much. And there's a lot less effort to apply the Bible to social issues and, and it's just social righteousness, not just laws and things yeah. in the 1880s as opposed to the 1830s. And it, it's also that time that, that this, the group that is really upset about the Bible, the way in which the Bible used to support slavery, gravitates toward biblical higher criticism. You begin to get people nervous about uh, whether evolution can be uh, accorded with the Bible. Actually, much less of a problem in the 19th century than it became in the mid-20th century. Um, but And the Bible is still precious. You have the eventually holiness movements, Pentecostal movements are all deeply biblical. You get a, a real strong expansion in a personal level of the Bible Christianity, but a real strong shrinking of anything are very much social and, and, and political. So you see, in, in, in uh, 1911, so this is the 300th anniversary of the King James Version of the Bible, Woodrow Wilson, Teddy Roosevelt, William Jennings Bryan, former president, soon to be president, three-time Democratic nominee for president, all give speeches on the Bible, how great it is. Bryan's is a Christian talk. He talks about Jesus a little bit. Wilson and Roosevelt, the Bible is just the book that helps us become the democratic civilization we've become. They're not anti-Christian, but they're not very Christian at all. Jamar Tisby was interviewed for the Civil Rights episode. Definitely go back and listen to that if you haven't. It's my favorite one so far, I think. And uh, yeah, I just really appreciated his perspective. There was some stuff we had to cut that was about sort of the history of the black church. 
and how that resulted in the segregated church that we sort of live with now. You get the flowering of historically black Christian denominations right after the Civil War. There were actually biracial churches prior to the Civil War. That, that's not because of any egalitarian sentiments for the most part. That was because slave owners and white people in general were very suspicious when black people got together, even if it was for church, because they might be plotting a rebellion. It was so that people in power could keep a watch on those over whom they lorded their power. You have black people sitting in the balconies or designated rows. You have specific sermons that are tailored to encourage slaves to obey their masters. But after the Civil War, when there's emancipation, when you don't have to, by law, go to church where an enslaver tells you to go to church, then black people bounce. They are out. (laughs) And they're like, we are going to worship in our own churches in our own way. And so you get the National Baptist Convention, which is the largest black Baptist convention uh, in in the U.S. Um, In the early part of the the 20th century, you get uh, the Church of God in Christ and um, Church of Christ Holiness. You get uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church has been around since uh, the early 1800s already by that point. It's just telling that for almost every denomination, there's some sort of black fellowship that is virtually identical except for race. And the reason that comes up is because year after year, congregation after congregation, situation after situation, black people could not find equality in predominantly white church spaces. Many branches of the white American church might start with something triumphal, the resurrection. They might start with the New Testament and the coming of the Messiah. In the black church, they start with the Exodus, and they start with slavery under Pharaoh, and they look at the Bible's message of liberation. And so when black people in America are first adopting Christianity, they're looking immediately to a couple of things. One, the image of God, which is dignifying their humanity and their existence in the midst of constant dehumanization and indignities of slavery and racism and segregation. There are posters that say, I am a man, uh, meaning not just male, but I am a human being. And so that's an assertion of the Imago Dei. But then they're also emphasizing liberation, that as an image bearer, I ought to be free. I ought to have an equal chance at flourishing as, as everyone else. And the fact that I have darker skin shouldn't limit my opportunities as a member of this society, as a citizen, or as a, as a believer. There, there was not a stark separation between their political and civic well-being and what the Bible taught. Those distinctions can tend to be sharper in white evangelical churches in America. But one thing that makes the civil rights movement stand out is its conspicuousness. It's the fact that at this point in time, the black freedom struggle became public in a way that it hasn't always been in the past. So as we think of the leaders of the civil rights movement, it's a very much black church-centric, minister-centric kind of story. People like Martin Luther King Jr. and many others, they're thinking very theologically about this. What King was was a product of the black church, and what the civil rights movement was, a, a sort of 
peeking out a tip of the iceberg of what the black church has been for centuries for black people. And so one of the ways that the Bible framed the civil rights movement was with talk of the kingdom of God. So a lot of ministers, a lot of civil rights leaders are talking about, well, what does justice look like in the kingdom of God? In King's words, the beloved community. And so they're putting forth this biblical vision of unity and justice that honors differences and diversity, but it's very much under the lordship of Christ. And that's what they're pushing toward and moving toward.